Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. This is Amy Bird, and what a weird day this is. I find myself all alone here uh, recording this podcast. Ironically, I showed up wearing my Save Ferris t-shirt in reference to the Ferris Bueller movie. I don't know how many listeners have watched that classic but you know Ferris was playing hooky from school and he convinced a lot of people that he was sick and the next thing you know everyone in school is wearing safe Ferris t-shirts well I think maybe mortification of spin needs to make a save Amy t-shirt because here I am and we hear these excuses from Carl now all the time oh I'm in Italy oh I'm I'm visiting with my mom or and now I'm in Australia this is a bad week to record and, and so Todd and I were going to show up today and record together but Todd is missing in action so it is just me so what we have decided to do for you um today is to go way back to day one into the archives into the the age of ba before amy in the beginning was carl and todd and and things weren't so bad and they they made a couple of of mortification of spin podcast recordings not all of them have been made public but then came along a woman and it was very good but the question is what did carl and Todd talk about before me? Well, it turns out that they talked about a woman. So stay tuned and listen today to their review of Rosaria Butterfield's first book, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. Carl, tell us about yourself. My name is Carl Truman. I'm Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. I'm a Christian by conversion and a Presbyterian by conviction. And I'm the husband of one wife, the present Mrs. Truman, and of two nearly adult sons. Very good. Todd, tell us a bit about yourself. I'd be happy to. My name is Todd Pruitt. I am the teaching pastor at Church, which is a non-denominational church in the Western suburbs of Philadelphia in Wayne, Pennsylvania. I've been here four years. Prior to that, I was Southern Baptist. I was born and raised Southern Baptist. My theological convictions are uh, reformed. I am in a non-denominational church, but whose roots are in the Reformation. I'm a husband, father of three children. My oldest is 18. Um, So daily dealing with all of those wonderful family things as well. I should probably mention I'm also uh, an Orthodox Presbyterian Church pastor, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler. Yes, and and I'm not a professor, so. But you are a, a, a gun wielding, Tea Party sympathizing, Republican voting, celebrity indeed. pastor of a mega church. Indeed, you indeed, and in that everything m- I despise. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I, I mean, personally, I'm grateful that you spend time with me because of those things. And while I appreciate your published works. We will see if we can make some headway into your 
foolish political meanderings while we uh, while we take this time together. Uh, talking of my published works, Todd, uh, have you read any particularly important books over the last couple of weeks? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, you and I have talked about, in fact, I got a hold of uh, the book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, because of a book review you did of it um, for the Ref21 website. And it, it really has become my favorite book of the year. I think it's a profoundly important book on a whole lot of levels, and already one that I've been giving copies out and recommending widely. In fact, a book I, I would like to see all of the ministry staff read for a whole lot of reasons. Um, Carl, kind of tell us what struck you about the book. For those of you who haven't read the book, it's written by a lady called Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, who is a professor of English literature at Syracuse University. She specializes in 19th century literature and comes at it particularly from the angle of what we would call queer theory. In other words, looking for homosexual subtexts uh, and homosexual ideology as expressed through literature. She herself was a very committed queer theorist and a very committed lesbian in, in a lesbian relationship with, with her partner. And she was at some point being deluged with what we might call hate mail from the Christian community, but was very struck by one letter she received from an older Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America pastor who wrote her a very kind letter and asked if she would come and have dinner with him and his wife. And this was the beginning of a rather unusual friendship that developed over a a period of time. And really through the simple, friendly, loving witness of this humble pastor and his wife, uh, this lady was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not simply converted, but really, really converted. Uh, The book is not just a testimony to the Lord's saving grace in her life. It's also a testimony to things such as exclusive psalmody, which is one of the distinctives of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and just about as far away from the culture of queer theory as one could possibly get. So it is a remarkable story of God's grace. There is little in it for the comfort of Christians, because the things she says about the hateful way many Christians interact with uh, the gay community, I think, ring very true and, and give us naught for our comfort. But it is a powerful and encouraging testimony to the power of God's grace, even in the most unlikely of circumstances. Todd, uh, do you want to add some more specific comments to that? Well, and certainly I, uh, one of the things you said that I identify with so much about this book is that it's far more than just a biography. I learned a great deal. I was challenged. And one of the things that I was so encouraged about is how she holds forth God's beautiful, simple, ordinary means to bring about conversion in someone who, by any standard of measurement, is highly pagan. I love this one comment from page 24 of the book. She said, God sent me to a Reformed and Presbyterian conservative church to repent, heal, learn, and thrive. The pastor there did not farm me out to a parachurch ministry, quote, specializing in gay people, end quote. He in the session knew that the church is competent to counsel. I needed faithful shepherding, not the glitz and glamour that has captured the soul of modern evangelical culture. I think that's a profound statement because I think the church, by and large, has been caught and captivated by the glitz and glamour of evangelical celebrity, something I know, Carl, you haven't had anything to say about um, in recent uh, years. 
but again, I, I was struck by the beauty of the simplicity of God's ordinary means to bring about conversion. And she writes about that quite movingly. Yeah, that's very striking. Because one of the things that I think uh, tends to, maybe corrupt is too strong a word, but certainly tends to distort thinking in the church is that so often our narcissism comes through in the way we view our own sin. We often think that our sins are particularly special, that we need special help in dealing with the things we struggle with in our lives. This book is a great testimony to the fact that, yes, sin manifests itself in, in various different ways. It always has a very particular manifestation. But the root problem, rebellion against God, remains the same for all sins. And the solution remains the same, and that is the declaration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the need to bow the knee in repentance and turn to him in faith. It doesn't matter if you're a mass murderer or if you're somebody who merely you know, looks at his neighbor's wife in a lustful way. The solution is ultimately the same. And I think we've, particularly perhaps in America, been captivated not just by the celebrity culture, but also by the, the specialist technician culture, where every specific problem needs a specific and unique solution. Actually, every sinful problem needs the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can trust the Lord to apply the word as it's proclaimed to the hearts of individuals in their particular sins. I was also struck, as she wrote about the radical nature of conversion itself, she helps dismiss, I think, quite well and quite helpfully the idea that oftentimes we Christians have that a lost person must be miserable in their lostness. Um, A non-Christian must be unhappy until we can sweep in and, and show them how to be happy in Jesus. And she writes quite well and effectively about the fact that she was very fulfilled in her professional life. Her career was advancing. She had a community that cared about her, where she found a great deal of acceptance and love and service. And it was all thoroughly pagan. And she was thoroughly happy and fulfilled. And so conversion to Christ was something that was not like slipping into a warm bath. It was radically disruptive to her life. And for me as a pastor, that's very helpful because I have to realize when I'm dealing with adult converts, I'm dealing with people whose lives are being turned upside down by the Lord Jesus. It's going to wreck some of their relationships. It it may ruin some of their careers. And I think this is where this book can be very helpful for pastors and for the laity in the church who are interested in evangelism, that when we call someone to faith in Christ, we're calling them to abandon things. And we're calling them to take up things that they haven't taken up before. And we're, in a roundabout way, calling them away from things that have provided them with a great deal of comfort. And we had better be a body, that is the church, that knows how to catch people whose lives have just been turned upside down and been made, in some cases, very inconvenient uh, by Jesus. Yeah, I think the, the Jesus makes you happy and fulfills your life paradigm is another example of the way modern consumerist culture and aspirations have corrupted the vision of the Christian life. The Bible gives us no basis for thinking of that. Moses' life is made incalculably difficult when he's called by the Lord to the Lord's service. When Gideon is called, the first thing that happens is his friends and neighbors want to lynch him for tearing down the the idol in his, his father's house. When Paul is converted, Paul presumably He's had a a superb rabbinic education. He's rising through the ranks. He's becoming a hero in many ways of the the anti-Christian Jewish faction. 
He's converted on the Damascus Road, and the rest of his life really is, humanly speaking, pretty miserable. He's flogged, he's shipwrecked, he's despised, he's imprisoned. And yet throughout that all, he retains this great joy in the Lord, but it's not a joy in terms of sitting back with his pipe and slippers and just watching you know, the world go by. It's a joy that in some ways stands in, in opposition to what he's actually experiencing. And I think we could take that down to the level of ordinary believers and say what happens when you're converted is you become somebody at war with yourself. The non-Christian is perfectly happy to walk along the broad road that leads to destruction. It's the Christian who's engaging in internal struggle against sin, against the old man. The Christian life is, is almost by definition one that isn't happy or contented in the way the world expresses it. And, and Rosaria Champagne Butterfield's book is a superb testimony to that, that really she loses her friends, she loses her community, she loses her career. career. She is left in a terribly exposed and vulnerable position. And uh, I think that's a reminder to, to all pastors and all Christians that when people are converted, they need to be cared for because they are going to lose, some of them are going to lose everything. And that's what's so beautiful about the book is you see a portrait of faithful pastors and their wives being fathful pastors and pastors' wives in the life of this woman. Imagine how, and she writes about how uncomfortable it was the first time pastor and his wife who, who really helped win her to the Lord met her lesbian partner. What well, can you imagine how odd that was? And can you imagine the grace and the strength of this pastor and his wife to be okay with meeting this woman's lesbian partner, and to not shun her in that moment, but to continue to love her. And one of the things she writes is that this pastor, she always knew that this pastor never approved of her lifestyle, but that he very much loved her. And I think oftentimes in evangelicalism, love is conflated into sentimentalism, where love becomes equated with approving of everything I'm doing. I I must confess, I did something very terrible the other day. I watched Joel Osteen on on Oprah's Life Class. I, I hope you told your elders about <laughs> yeah, I, that. I, so. Well, I'm <laughs> confessing this for the first time because it could lead to to problems with my credentials. But I, I did watch it, and it was once again put on display what what Mike Horton has called Christless Christianity. It was a version of Christianity that Oprah very much affirmed, and so it, it was no Christianity at all. It was all very positive. It was all very nice. But it just lacked truth. Now, now, one of the things that she does, and you wrote about this in your book review, is that she shows the, and I don't know what the word would be, perhaps usefulness of denominational distinctives, of a clear denominational identity. I heard somebody ask a question one time, will there be denominations in heaven? And the response, I think, was very helpful, which is, no, there won't be denominations in heaven, but we need them while we're here. Now, Carl, you're a denominational man. You were recently installed as pastor of an OPC church. Give us your thoughts on her journey in this book from, as you've already pointed out, such radically different worldview from being a a womanist professor at Syracuse to being a pastor's wife in a small, very conservative denomination. And what does, as she tells her story, what does it tell us about the importance of a church with a clear theological identity? Well, I think there are numerous comments one could make on that. First of all, it it shows, in her case, the totality of conversion. To go from a a queer theorist to an exclusive psalmodist, that is about as 
far mm-hmm. away as you can, you know, those two poles are very, very far away from each other. So it shows the, the totality of conversion. I think it also speaks to the fact that uh, Christianity only ever exists here on earth in very particular forms. It exists in terms of, of local churches, and local churches have to have either explicit or implicit beliefs and positions on a whole host of things. You can't just be a Christian in general. You've got to be a Christian in a particular place at a particular time connected to a particular church. I think it would also indicate the, the power of elaborate Christianity. There is a sense in which mere Christianity is important. We want to set the bar low for entry into the kingdom of heaven, if I could put it that way. But to grow as a Christian in a satisfying way, and I'm not talking satisfying in terms of consumerism, I'm talking in terms of growing in your knowledge of the Lord, you've got to grow in a particular way. You've got to grow in an elaborate way. And the way to do that is to be part of a particular church with an elaborate confession of faith, a confession of faith that lays out a roadmap, if you like, for doctrinal and ethical and spiritual maturity. I've made this point many times. If if you belong to a church that has a statement of faith, that has 10 items on, on the statement, then you're never going to be able to persuade people that the 11th item is important. You've set the bar low all the way through your church. I think when, when you see somebody of the, the evident intelligence of Rosaria Butterfield, somebody who clearly has a comprehensive view of the world before she becomes a Christian, that comprehensive view needs to be replaced with something equally comprehensive. And that's what she finds in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. I would also say it's a great example of how We tend to live in a world where the internet and the television dominate what we think of as reality. That's a very illusory reality, really. Real reality occurs at a local level in local churches. She's a member of a church that is tiny, virtually unknown. She's having a huge impact, I'm sure, in that church. And thanks to the Lord's grace, she's now having a huge impact beyond the bounds of that church because of her testimony. But what it really points us towards is the importance of humble service in local churches. Now, you're the celebrity pastor of a megachurch, Todd. How do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Well, and what you just mentioned is, again, one of the very moving things about the book is you see the power of humble service in a church as she recounts the lives of the people who impacted her, going all the way up to to the man she met and, and married. What you see, the power of hospitality was driven home to me um, in this book. Um, the ministry of hospitality and the means by which people come to faith through such simple ways of having someone in your home. Now, in a large church, some of these things can be challenging. They don't have to be, but they are. And I know what it is to pastor a small church. I know what it is to pastor a large church. I know what it is to pastor an even larger than large church. And it is very easy for pastors of large churches to become inoculated from uh, the needs of the people in their congregation. Clearly, we can't know everyone. And so the necessity of an active uh, body of elders um, is all the more pronounced. And I think that there's a lot of large churches, larger churches that are asking some of these questions. How possible is it to pastor people? How possible is it for a pastor of a large church to still do the kinds of things 
that she describes pastors doing in this book. I remember being a, a brand new pastor some years ago, listening to a very, very well-known celebrity pastor denigrate the entire idea of the pastor as shepherd. And he commended to us the idea of a rancher, whereby we would just oversee people who actually did the work with the sheep. And and speaking pragmatically, thinking pragmatically, I suppose that makes sense. It's just that it's unbiblical, and that's the problem. It's very American, though. I would imagine. <laughs> I would imagine, because we are a pragmatic people. We, we value the worth of something in terms of does it make us bigger? Does it bring us more funds? Does it make us uh, more influential? And so it's the cash value of a church is measured in very worldly ways. Yeah, and what is stunning about the pastor who first ministers to Mrs. Butterfield is he has time. He has time right. for people. He has time to open his house uh, to this lady, to her partner, to her friends. Uh, he's available. Right. And I think that is a very, very striking aspect mm-hmm. Of his ministry, and it has, well, people aren't converted because people make time for them, but people are converted because they're attracted to people who have time for them, and then they go and sit and hear them speaking the word of God. And that, I think, is the crucial connection Mm -hmm. in this book. And I would say to any pastor whose church is growing or who is pastoring a large church or who who wants to pastor a large church, um, that if you cease doing those things, then your soul is going to shrivel up and die. However large the church is you pastor, if you are not regularly in people's homes or having people in your home, then I would argue that it's quite probable you're in sin. I think the lie that oftentimes pastors of large churches are told is that now that you've reached this level of growth, this level of numeric success, It's time to do other things. It's time to make sure that um, you're busy with book tours and and that sort of thing, rather than having people in your home or being in people's homes. Now, that's not to say you can't tour with a book and do these other things. But my experience tells me, and I think it's more than anecdotal, that the modern megachurch pastor, and I'm one of those guys, um, tends to move towards isolation rather than full engagement with the people that he serves as pastor. And so, therefore, we have to have voices in place to keep us from falling into that. Well, that's a great point to end, I think, there, Todd. That thought in itself, I think, is worthy of discussion in a future program. But I'd just like to make sure that uh, listeners have got the title of that book. It's The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. It's published by Crown and Covenant Publications, which is the publishing wing of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And if you buy one book this year and read one book other than the Bible, it should be this one. Mm -hmm. It really is that unique and that important. Yes. Okay, well, there you have it. From the beginning, 
Carl and Todd were talking about women's authors. That's pretty awesome. And thanks, Rosaria, for writing such a good book. Maybe uh, you would like to get a copy of that book. We're going to give away a few free copies of it over at our website, mortificationofspin.org. So cruise on over there and register to win a copy of Rosaria's great book. And also you can leave a donation for us to help us continue our ministry with a woman. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about What would you say to male pastors is the most important thing for them to understand about women's ministry. Yeah, because I think a lot of the issues that I see is this lack of training. And what we've found is that we've got lots of women in our church that are saying they're enthusiastic about being taught how to teach. It's just something um, that I hope more women will start feeling comfortable going to seminary, taking these classes. That interview is next time. Join us then. pretty good yep i think i think so nicely passionate yes